Welcome, welcome everyone to the Downstream from Religion podcast. I am your host, Rabbi Ian P. Bailey, LCPC. I am a psychotherapist and an ordained rabbi, and I am here today to show you how the Book of Judges highlights the problems and solutions for our times. Feel free to email me, rabbi at rabbibailey.com, rabbibailey at gmail.com. Most importantly, subscribe, tell your friends, share the word. Share these ideas, word of God, or inspiration that can directly help us in these crazy times in 2021. You know what I'm talking about. We are going to primarily speak about the judge called Jephthah in English. That is a tongue twister, my friends. In Hebrew, it's much more phonetic, Yiftach. Yiftach means to open up. Uh, but before we get there, we need to finish chapter 10. And before that, I wanted to mention, as sort of putting the ribbon onto the previous section, Yair, I forgot to mention Yair, means to illuminate. He illuminated those times, even though the world was filled with idolatry and brainwashing, that he illuminated the world because one can still study religion, share religion, and make money in a kosher way, so to speak, even in those crazy times. We cannot let the fear and the brainwashing, I'm just going to say it, brainwashing, the incorrect media programming us with headlines and flicker rates on the television, etc. We must keep trucking on. Thank you, Yair. However, a similar cycle ensues for the Jewish people. That was some alliteration there, huh? The Jewish people, this is 10-6. Children of Israel, continue to do what is evil in the eyes of God. And the Jewish people worshipped Baalim and Astros. Familiar idolatries to us who study this together. The gods of Aram, Sidon. Gods of Moab, children of Ammon, other lowercase g gods of the Philistines. They forsook God and did not serve him. To forsake, forsook, that is an uh, anachronistic sort of passe word, but it means to actively shove away something. A man forsakes his family to cleave to his wife. So the depth of what's going on here, you might expect me to tie in these seven uh, sets of gods to the seven steps of kingship. Um, they definitely are the evil versions of some of these steps, but they are not the total seven steps. These are the nastier steps turned evil. In other words, when we say that uh, kingship is good as the seventh step, there's also evil kingship we have in the tradition. The first step is uh, not being non-judgmental and finding sustenance. There's also such a thing as the gods of Amo, the gods of Moab, Moab, as we said, as we spoke about with Ehud and Eglon. Remember, he was left-handed. He um, shoved the sword in his belly. There is a downside to being open-minded and non-judgmental. The second step, guarding step. There's a downside to having boundaries. If you separate people, it's a siege. At the same time, people need to have boundaries to have separate homes and separate privacy. So here, God is sending very specific types of lowercase g gods um, to facilitate them changing. At the same time, they themselves actively forsake the Jewish God. They do not worship him even as a partner. They put themselves into these stressful situations and or God puts them in these situations and the Jewish tradition says, you know, there's a food they cook seven times and it finally gets sweet. The Jewish people had their goose cooked here, metaphorically speaking. They were put into the bowels of stress and they did not listen to God. Still didn't serve him. So God says, fine, I'm going to do what's called measure for measure punishment. The most proper punishment is to receive what you try to do. You try to do, try to do something to others. You get that punishment. The Egyptians tried to drown the Jewish people. They were drowned. The adults were drowned in the Red Sea, Sea of Reeds. Here, the measure for measure is God says, you know what? Go ahead. Worship 
Baalim and Ashtaros see if they deliver you salvation. Of course they don't. So God sends these gods of the Tzidonites, which is kingship, Moab. That's the, an Ammon, the sustaining level and the guarding level. The Philistines is the guarding level. Um, and we have Baalim and Ashtaros. Remember, the male and female archetypal superhero gods or nasty goat gods. Uh, so the Jewish people worship them. And then later, God's, it says over here, God sends uh, the Philistines and the Ammonites, then the Tzedonites. So we have guarding. Very, in other words, very strong attack. Guarding really, like, it's refining. You know, a rose bush is beautiful because it has sustenance, but you have to trim it in order to get the right balance of nutrients and space, sustenance, water. Having too much is, is a problem. Trimming it away, trimming the bad equals more good. So here it's like a trimming away of the bad. The Philistines and the Ammonites, the flavor, the sociological personality of their nation is guarding. They come and attack to refine the Jewish people. The Sidonites, the Sidonians, it has here in English. They're from up north. They're sort of this meta, um, powerful nation of uh commanding, monarchical type of nation, who's also very good at business. This nation called Ma'on, we haven't heard of them before. Um, but it, it, that means, Ma'on is almost like, a, it also means oppressing or hurting. So then the Amalekites, we talked about Amalekites, they're, they're so open-minded about religion, they're so anti-religion that their brain falls out, they just want to destroy religion. So all of these type of classic nations come to re refine. God says, you know what? I'm not even going to help you. At the end of the day, he does send some sort of help, but it's a, you know it's in accordance to their behavior. But the truth be told, you know, if the Jewish people are not saving themselves, they don't deserve divine providence. Once they start to cry out and have sincerity, then they deserve the uh, divine intervention over here. So it's uh, it sounds harsh. We hope that God would always save us at all times, but. We also get what we deserve in a very fitting way, even though it might be difficult. Um, so the children of Ammon were mustered and encamped in Gilead. So let's get our visual here. Israel is that sideways triangle, right? So picture a triangle that looks like a pyramid pointing up. Turn that pyramid counterclockwise, 90 degrees, and you have the point, the top of the triangle facing to the left, the west, towards Egypt and the Mediterranean Sea. The right side of the triangle is now a vertical line up and down. Roughly, that is the Jordan River, right? Jordan River runs up. There's like a, a huge lake, mini ocean there, the Sea of the Galilee. And the Jordan River goes up even higher than that to mountains up there, Mount Hermon, Hermon, and other places. And then the river in contradistinction, runs south all the way down to the Dead Sea, which is the Salt Sea, where Sodom and Gomorrah were turned upside down and sulfur and salt was put there. A very large salty sea. I highly recommend visiting Israel, visiting that Salt Sea. Delicious, delicious. The wonderful healing, wonderful healing muds and salts are there, and you can hardly stand up straight as it gets deeper. You have to go sideways. Very interesting, cool. So that, that right side of Israel, so to speak, is a vertical line. It's the Jordan River. And the other side of the Jordan River is where those nomadic tribes live, the Ammonites and the Moabites, these people that keep coming. Bodedim, Shodedim in Hebrew. They are the, the nomadic plunderers. Nomadic plunderers that keep coming to bother Israel, as opposed to the Canaanites who live in Israel along with the a lot of the Hittites and other, those classical seven nations. In any event, the Gilead. So the Gilead is, is a name we will see pop up a lot for basically what we call the Transjordan, the area on the other side of the Jordan River where Jewish people live. Um, certain people chose to live there. There were actually at least two men named Gilad. Um, the first one, strangely enough, is not mentioned clearly, clearly in Scripture, but his name is placed through implication. Um, so that's called the Gilead, and they needed to sort of fend off and save, be saved from the Ammonites. 
so the children of Israel gather in a city called Mitzpah. I'm at uh, 10, 17, and 18. So the, 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 the princes, the leaders of, of Gilead said, Whoever, whichever man will begin to do battle with the children of Ammon, and later on to beat them, will become the leader of all the inhabitants of Gilead. Transition, 11.1, chapter 11, to Yiftach. I will try to say Jephthah. It is so many H's. That's, that's three H's. is hard. So however you remember this name, please, please have mercy on me. So Jephthah, he was a Giladite. He lived in that Transjordan region on the other side of the Jordan River. He lived in an encampment down by the river. He was a mighty man of valor, which has to do with war. He was decorated. He was the son of a concubine. So in Hebrew, it says Zona, actually. Pelegish in Hebrew is a word for a concubine, which is a wife dedicated to one man. She does not have the full marriage contract and support as a regular wife. Needs explanation. In those days, you know, many women, many men died and there was tremendous poverty. So it wasn't as crazy to live with multiple wives. Nowadays, since the year 1100, rabbis have said, at least in the you know, Western Ashkenazi Jewish countries, it doesn't make sense to have more than one wife. There's too much um, fighting and um, problems. Have one wife. And even the Sephardic, the Jews from the Arabic lands nowadays, only have one wife. That is what's practical and appropriate. In times, God forbid, of poverty, when people are at the bottom of the Maslow's hierarchy of needs, they... Um, can perhaps handle having more than one wife because they, um, it's, everyone's just thinking about their basic needs and they can satisfy physical and emotional needs on that lower level, etc. Discussion for another time. You got a tidbit summary there. So here, in one way or another, Jephthah's mother was in an in-ideal situation. In Hebrew, it actually says zona, which means prostitute, a woman set aside for relations. However, the commentaries disagree whether it means she was actually a prostitute, but he was still a holy Jewish man, or if his mother was from a different tribe, and then she ended up moving here. In other words, usually people stayed in the same tribe. If his mother was from a different tribe, um, which means like... Uh, you know, Joseph as opposed to Judah and these sort of things. So therefore, there was something taboo. It was taboo, an intermarriage type of deal here. So, circling back, originally, Benjamin and Judah were attacked by Ammon. This is approximately 18 years earlier. And Ammon coming as guarding people, attacking the strongest kingship tribe of Judah, and sort of the plainest, most malleable tribe, a malleable tribe of Benjamin, they show that they're going to attack anyone. Uh, they leave, Amalek, Amalek, Amalek comes, and then Ammon comes again in our chapter here, 11.1, and we're going to need a strong response to a strong attack. Hence the uh, necessity for someone as strong as Jephthah to come. And we shall build up his strength, and the whole uh, big picture here. So he has other half-siblings born through uh, Gilead's uh, full wife from his tribe. Again, his mother's from a different tribe. She gave up her inheritance from that tribe in order to uh, come and to adopt this, this foreign culture from a different tribe, different state almost. And uh, Jephthah, Jephthah's brothers... Drove him away saying, you're not going to inherit the household over here. You're, you're a son of another woman. Get out of here. This is not, you're not part of this estate. So he fled and settled in the land of Tob. Now Tob means Tov. Good. It's a goodly, blessed land over there on the Transjordan. But boorish men collected around him. He ventured forth with them. So is it significant that he is beaten down here and, ch and chastised? And that men collect around him. So it happened after this that Ammon comes, as we said. The Ammonites come and attack. And the elders come to Jephthah and say, Come be our chief. Do battle with the children of Ammon. Now very specifically here, if you have your uh, seven steps of kingship radar, they don't say, Come be our king. 
they say, come be our chief, sort of a head of, head of a tribe. Be, be a tribal leader for now. Uh, the commentators say that Jephthah believed he was going to be a, a type of king here. Um, and eventually he's called a rosh, he's called a head, uh, which is the um, same thing in English, the head of the company. He's going to be the head of the group. Uh, and Jephthah, this is 11.7, says to the elders of Gilead, didn't you hate me and you drove me away? And they said, listen, that's why we come back to you in order to do battle with Amon, and then you can be a leader over us. Look, you got what you want over all the inhabitants of the Gilead. Uh, so, you know, <laughs> Jephthah was just getting out of there, hanging out in these tribes in the Transjordan, uh, minding his business. Now, if you go, if you remember, we spoke about this. If you go to these maps, there interestingly were two and a half tribes that are on the other side of the Jordan. You have Gad, uh, G-A-D, and Reuben, and half of Manasseh, half of one of the Josephite tribes. Um, and we theorized that those tribes had personalities where they were really successful in business. So it says in De Deuteronomy that they wanted to stay on the other side of the Jordan River. So they're successful in business and they can handle living in a, quote, secular culture um, more than other people, analogous to some people really need to be part of their religious community, and some people really struggle having shops in certain areas that are not part of their community. Uh, so, uh, you know, Jephthah, he has this whole uh, chip on his shoulder, right? So he leaves, and he's minding his business. He's out there. It's like it's like almost like the Wild West. He's out there. He's herding cattle, having a good time, and they come back because they need him. The elders said to him, we promise you, and they give their word, etc., the rest of this chapter, we see uh, Jephthah acting as a king. So he sends emissaries to the kings of Ammon, and they discuss, and then he has some very strong uh, kingly, monarchical statements saying that we will go and defeat you uh, in the spirit of God. Uh, this is uh, sentence 29. The spirit of God was on Jephthah, and he passed through the area of the Gilead, Passed by Manasseh, remember that? A Josephite tribe. Passed through Mitzpah, where all those uh, princes were gathered. And he went over to Ammon, who again was far the farther south in the, a little bit more of a desert region, these uh, nomadic plunderer areas. Um, and, he, and so Jephthah made a vow to God, if you deliver the children of Ammon into my hand, whatever comes out of my house, I will give it as an offering uh, to God. Now remember this for later, this becomes part of his tragic story. It ends up that Jephthah leads the children of Israel to victory. He comes home, and for, unfortunately his daughter comes out of the house with drums and dances, and they're un uh, he says, oh no, you know, I meant to dedicate animals that came out of my house to an animal offering. My daughter needs to be dedicated to God. He, can, he cannot sacrifice her as an offering. Literally, it's murder, and God doesn't accept humans as offerings. He accepts animals. So she lives um, without getting married, and they mourn her uh, for many years. That ends chapter 11. So let's go through this. The first thing you need to know, <laughs> this, is, this is not a story about a tragedy of male chauvinism and abusing a daughter and controlling her. In fact, in Jewish law, if someone makes a vow like this, and then the daughter comes out, he could give the daughter's uh, like physical work value in money. Obviously, humans don't have a value. We are invaluable. But there's a certain value that humans have in Jewish law that you know, if you say, oh, I would pay this much money for a butler or a maid, he could have donated that money. He also could have annulled his vow. This is a vow. In Jewish law, if someone has a reason to annul a vow, he or she may do so. They go to an elder, they go to the courts, you have multiple rabbis or wise men, you have one big rabbi, and you're able to annul the vow. So here, my theory is, you know, Jephthah, his crime is a crime of ignorance and arrogance. In those times, Pinchas, what you say, Phineas, was still alive. The famous Phineas from the book of Numbers, 
who stopped the Jewish people from doing idolatry with the peor, the disgusting, inappropriateness, and defecation, lowercase g god, their, their idol. He took a spear, stopped the matter. He was actually still alive. We see this later in the book. So, he could have gone to him. Why did they not go to each other? Each person said, I am so high level. I'm not going to go to him to make this happen. So Jephthah said, I am a king now, which he really wasn't, but he's acting as a king. I will not go to the high priest, to Phineas. And Phineas said, I am the high priest. This non-king leader who is fairly, let's say, half an ignoramus. He's half sage, half ignoramus. I'm not going to him. So between their hubris, this tragedy happened. It came out of ignorance and arrogance, not because somehow uh, Judaism or any religion is uh, male chauvinism and abuse. How did Jephthah get his haughtiness? Because he, in his personality, was harnessing the attribute of kingship. He himself had the kingly personality without the right lineage. I am going to theorize for you today that there are three people in the book of Judges who each of them personifies one-third of the type of Davidic king that is supposed to be. King David is the first Davidic king. We'll speak about Saul in a minute. And we spoke about Othniel, son of Kenaz, Othniel ben Kenaz in the beginning of the book. We have Samson, we're speaking about next, after three minor judges, and Jephthah. So, Othniel, son of Kenaz, he came from the tribe of Judah. He had raw power and masculinity, he owned land. It's that he had the lineage, and he had the, the raw power and the ability of a king. Samson has the active, proactive behavior of going forth and stopping attacks on the kingdom. A king is also supposed to stop the loopholes or funny business going on by people who circumvent the law. That is an attribute of a king, to actively, proactively go out. So Samson went to the Philistines with this guarding, provocative, uh, you know, besieging type of nation, and he very actively stopped them. You know, just to understand the scope of this, I mean, we, in, in the United States of America, we live in this sort of supposedly free and open society, and those, those type of, you know, even if someone's a sincere, God-fearing politician, uh, you know, he or she believes that we all should just go work and go home and live a peaceful life. We don't have this healthy paranoia of a king to go and think about all the corruption and backdoor cronyism that goes on, but that's exactly what ruins this country and has ruined it. I'm sitting here in the last day in October 2021. It's, it's exactly humans behaving badly. I always bring the example from the book of Esther of Haman and Ahasuerus. Ahasuerus is this king. He wants everyone to have their own language. Let's all party. Everyone have a great time and have your kingdom. But Haman is this aggressive, greedy person who still manages to have influence because... He's dealing with a more of a connective social politician here. So, if you, in the opposite, if you have a kingdom that has a king, the king will have a healthy paranoia about what's going on and inspect each part of the kingdom. But he or, or the queen, she will usually have too much control and power, and it, there will not be enough individualism and interaction. So, at the end of days, when the Messiah comes, God willing, happen at the right time, hopefully soon. The Joseph, the, the social interactive individualist, will come together with the descendant of David, the powerful king that takes care of all the loopholes, and that will be the healthiest, wonderful kingdom forever. But the, the normal king usually becomes corrupted. So that's the, that's the dynamic going on here. Jephthah is one-third of the recipe. He is someone who is driven away, beaten down, 
squashed, and he uses that chip on his shoulder to become a strong leader. We see this parallel of using a chip on his shoulder, becoming a strong leader with King David at the beginning of King David's life. And I write about this in my book, The Seven Ways. He's passed over. No one suspects he's going to be the king, not even Samuel or David's father. Take some time. And he's called small. He's pushed back by his brothers. It says that one of his sentences in Psalms is that the stone that was despised by the builders becomes the, the keystone or the cornerstone. That the very person that you think is obnoxious or out of place is the person that you need as the essential part of the group. Just as the keystone holds together, the entire arch or the cornerstone, the foundation of the building is essential. So is David or other strong leaders absolutely necessary. So here, Jephthah, Yiftah, has a chip on his shoulder. He's begrudging in his feelings. He already feels like he comes from illegitimate lineage. And even the main opinion in the rabbis is that he was a child of a prostitute. He's chased away. He takes this as a chip on his shoulder to be strong. He's a mighty warrior. Men gather around him. He's very appealing in his masculinity, in his strength. Unfortunately, they're boorish men because Jephthah doesn't have enough Torah, enough religious knowledge. The Jewish people asked for a king to save them, a leader to save them. God says, fine, if you are talking about a king that's lacking religious knowledge, you just want a physical king to save you? Yeah, I'll send you a physical king to save you. Great. I'll send you kingship without study, kingship without enough knowledge and morality. Parenthetically, a parallel to this is the anointment of King Saul, Shaul in Hebrew, where even though it is a sanctioned king from God, it is not the proper Jewish king fully. A proper Jewish king comes about at the right time from the commandment of the Bible to have a king. It does not come about when the Jewish people ask for a king. Asking for a king straight at the wrong time is, and saying you want it to be like other nations is asking for a king to be like other nations. You want a ruler. Similarly here, you know, requesting Yiftach's services to be a chieftain, King Li is asking for this essentially in, in the wrong way at the wrong time to be a strong leader, not in line with the full commandments of the Bible. Therefore, measure for measure, the Jewish people here receive a ruler that is devoid of the spiritual necessities. Now hold that thought for when we speak about the three minor judges in a minute, uh, with especially Ibtan is his name over here. Um, but I, I mean, the lesson is right now, uh, we cannot accept leaders that are devoid of spirituality. If people do not believe that there's a God above them, uh, that there's consequences to their actions, they're, they're going to be empty people. At the same time, you should know, we have a tradition that we need to follow the leaders of our generation. Moses in his generation is like Samuel in his generation, and those are the top two. But as Jephthah, Yiftach in his generation, you know, whoever the leader is, of the of Torah of, of religion we do need to follow their teachings now this is not always true some people error when it comes to medical advice or things like that but when it comes to the law and study we do have to have a certain conformity to the tradition so that setting that aside setting aside bonding together as a people to find the truth um, there are boorish men around him he is kingship without enough spirituality and that is why he develops the hubris he, he has people around him they love him he's powerful he's got the strength no one else can imitate him but he's got the hubris that leads to the demise of his daughter not speaking to Phineas extremely sad after that chapter 11 chapter 12 interesting very interesting little exchange here so Ephraim 
I'll call it Ephraim. I don't know if you say Ephraim, etc. In your in English or in your language. So Ephraim, if you remember, Jephthah passed by these children of Ephraim to go and defeat Ammon, and, and Ephraim says, "Why did you not bring us to help you? We're going to burn down your house with fire, man. What's going on here?" So some of the commentaries learn that it means they'll burn his house down with him in it to kill him. But I'm thinking that, you know, Ephraim is saying to him, we know we're not the kingly leader now, but you are not being the king to include all the components together. Back up a minute. Kingship really is every single component in that kingdom is in allegiance with the king. We call this keser, we call this crown in Judaism and Kabbalistic language. A king, the kingship cannot function. It's not a real kingship unless all the components are united. So here, I believe Ephraim is saying to him, you didn't call us to battle, which is normal. You are not actually uniting everyone in complete unity. We're going to burn down your house, meaning we're going to make a bald spot with your stuff to show that you are not part of this group. All the specificities, every detail in the nation is not together. You are not uniting us. However, it goes back on their head because Jephthah says to them, hold on a minute. I'm going to inspect you guys now. Say to me, Shiboleth versus Sibboleth. Now Shiboleth is a bundle of wheat or grain. But if people said Sibboleth, that was improper, and Jephthah killed them. What's going on here? The Jewish commentaries say that Sibboleth is Sabal. It is a language of idolatry. So Ephraim, the tribe of Ephraim, put the eye of scrutiny upon itself. So Jephthah said, oh, you want to be part of the Jewish people? You need to stop doing idolatry. If you want to be connected, you need to watch out. And again, we go back to this parallel between David, between um, Judah and Joseph, between David and Joseph's descendants. You know, Ephraim is saying to Jephthah, if you want real kingship, the Malchut, you need to use your power properly to rouse people to bring them together. And that's the problem with raw power. It can be exploited, as King David did with Bathsheba. And the deep essential part of the descendants of Joseph is that they're able to connect to the secular realm uh, and make it religious. There actually is nothing really secular in the world. Everything is connected to spirituality and God and has a consequence. But Joseph is a master of being outside of a tight-knit community and making money over there, as did Yair. They are good at showing how certain secular knowledge can illuminate our own religion without being idolatrous. But as the brothers point out in the book of Genesis, according to the exegetical expoundations, if you will, you know, Joseph's behavior can save them in times they have to live in a secular world, but it can also bring about idolatry and the unhealthy secular, so to speak. So Ephraim here, you know, is supposed to be the localized, lateral leadership, counselors, psychology advisors. That's their attribute, but they ended up getting too involved in the secular culture. They themselves still had idolatry. In other words, you know, saying Sibboleth, it's not just, ah, you're busted for idolatry. It's the whole structure of what Ephraim and even Manasseh does can be super potent and powerful to unite people through consulting, to unite people through psychology, through secular knowledge, but it can also have a, a double-edged sword there that they will bring idolatry if it's not properly through the filter of kosherness, the filter of Judaism, or your same similar to anyone else's faith. Quote-unquote, secular knowledge and things need to be put to the filter of religion.
And it's a tragedy, 42,000 people fell from that nation. Perhaps Jephthah did not need to execute them. Perhaps he did because idolatry is a capital offense. There remains a certain civil war tragedy. And I have another message here. Something that th th these chapters really spoke to me. I can't tell you, they really touched my heart. And I, I hope somehow, even though they're so, so crass almost, so physical, so tragic, that they can also touch your heart. You know, when we look at the five books of Moses and, and other prophets, those people are such a high level of perfection, it's almost hard to relate to them sometimes. I try to use my book, The Seven Ways to Juice Out Some Meaning, in terms of the seven male archetypes, characters. I, God willing, I want to do this series, The Seven Ways, Women's Ways, of the seven female archetypes and characters. Sarah, Miriam, everybody. But in a certain way, in a certain profound way, the book of Judges really actually speaks to our time, the imperfect time we live in. Not only because of all these political ideas that I'm connecting here and political advice how to clean up our society, but just because the, hu the humans are, are imperfect and when they have weakness, just as we have weakness. We, we, can't, we can't live in a time where we expect ourselves to be perfect religiously or socially. We, we need to remember that we have imperfections and we just try our best. So here, Ephraim says to Yiftach, I have a lot of talent. Why aren't you using me? How many times have you felt in your life that you had a talent and you were not being utilized? I'm reading a, I just skimmed through a book called BS Jobs. The BS is spelled out, pardon me for saying something related to swearing. Cursing, cussing, whatever you call it in your society. Um, but he, this man actually did some scientific studies. He's a sociologist from a school in London. There are a very high level of people that feel their job is utterly useless. They're just ticking boxes or putting band-aids on things. And on a level that's simpler but perhaps more profound, how many times have you felt like you're at a job and you had lots of ideas? They didn't care. They didn't want to hear from you. I mean, it's Ephraim's statement is really the deep existential feeling I've had many times in my life. You know, the the organization has their own Yiftach, Jephthah, the organization has its own kingship, so to speak. People who are leaders, they don't want to hear because they're insecure, because they're dictatory. It could be either one. They could be as dictatory and controlling as an unhealthy king. And it could be as insecure as the people Joshua dealt with, those spies who were leaders, but they said we are like grasshoppers in our own eyes. They have their own low self-esteem. Perhaps the bosses or owners can't handle your ideas because it makes them feel small. But a good, healthy leader will be strong and accept ideas, and it makes them look good if they accept a subordinate's idea. As Jim Collins says in his books, good to great, great by choice, etc., the best level five leaders were humble but still extremely driven. Those roughly are secular versions of the Davidic model, King David, of, of saying, we are going to do this, we will do this, and God, God will help us, God willing, God will help us, let's pray. That is the right uh, recipe. Additionally, you have to be careful when you speak up at work to give innovative ideas. More often than not, even if the content of the ideas is important, the leadership, the administration, will not receive it well. If they do receive it well, if they want to utilize your ideas, you will probably know, and good luck. Try it. However, as Joseph, as Joseph, who is Ephraim's ancestor, found out, when you bring up problems within a system or enhancements that can be made, to say it positively, strangely enough, administration views it as annoying, a criticism of the way they do things in the workplace. So here, if we are in the shoes of Ephraim, we might want to be utilized. We might want people to accept our advice, but they have to want it, to be open-minded. Frankly, a lot of times to be desperate for it. You know, it seems strange to wait for a company to be so dysfunctional and problematic that one, they would finally listen to advice. But this is true. And only when the um, Jacob's children were starving did they listen 
to Joseph's prompting to come down and to Judah's strong leadership to come down. Again, Judah-Joseph dynamic. So the advice to you is be careful. You know, you might have to take your ideas with you somewhere else. You might have to be quiet. You might have to wait for urgency, unfortunately. You might have to find the right people to partner with. Another way is to pepper your ideas to the administration very subtly. Lateral leadership, horizontal leadership. That's what I've been studying. Hopefully put out some ideas about that in Ephraim. You know, Manasseh had that lateral leadership leading from the side, from underneath, or from underneath David, Judah, ancestors. But he also, again, lived in Israel and outside of Israel. So Manasseh can be viewed as also having a vertical on top leadership. This whole Ephraim type of leadership, it's Joseph in prison. Joshua, you know, one of the main people who sets the tone for this book, is a strong leader, but he also had that horizontal co-worker type of leadership with the spies who went to Israel. It is an unsung form of influence. You don't always need all the honor, because that with that comes stress. It says in the Jewish tradition that Joseph and Joshua were supposed to live longer than 110 years, but they only lived 110 years, which was long for that time for great leaders, because they had the stress and the burden of leadership. So sometimes it's good to be the alpha male. Sometimes it's good to be what we call a sigma male. Not always good to be commanding. It's good to be the connective advisor, the someone who's not afraid to be alone, to lead from the side, to be alpha when you have to be alpha and to just be doing your own thing and happy with it on the side. Very important for how we deal with the world and organizations. The tragic side of the story of Jephthah, of Yiftah, is one that relates to his namesake, Yiftah. He has opened up the country to understand the potency of the nitty-gritty levels of kingship, and he has also illuminated our eyes as to the downside of leadership and the positive. In terms of the downside, the downside is we need to make sure that our leaders are humble and believe there's a higher power, otherwise they're just selfish and have to do with might or greed. In this case, it's might. Other people, not Yiftach, it's greed or power. And with the Ephraim, you know, it's natural to want to feel included in things, whether it's at work with deep ideas or whether it's children. You know, if people are working with a fear-based model or with the you know the kind of a bossy model, you're come over here, you go over there, you know, telling your kids what to do. But the positive discipline model is as much as you can start early and ask questions. What do you think, child? Is enough time to get ready? What do you think? How long do you think? Did you feel good that you got there late? What do you think about that? Getting them to self-reflect about the situation, though that is activating people and they're thinking, you know, parents say to me in family therapy, I want my children to be independent, but they spend all this time instructing them. People, you have to believe that people have their own problem-solving ability, their own creativity, not just art creativity, artistic creativity, but in terms of problem-solving, it's a big tenet of family therapy, even in my profession. I work on trying to give less direction and more facilitation. Or I give instructions and see how it doesn't work and then facilitate problem-solving and answers. People could also get frustrated on their own, like, yeah, let's just solve this thing. Now let's go. However, Yiftach does not necessarily represent just this Jephthah of control. You know, how often in your life have you felt, frankly, disgruntled? I, I know I felt this way. Yiftach, Jephthah speaks to me so much. Did you ever feel like you're part of a group and they're just so exclusatory towards you? Exclude you? Rude to you? Not listening to you? Bad situation? Part of the answer is, forget you guys. I'm out of here. <laughs> I'm, done with, I'm done with this baloney, this malarkey. I assume people felt this way sometime in the past couple years. I'm sitting in here in November of 2021. COVID times. Um, but I mean, just think back into your life, uh, being mistreated, you know, many times we might just 
among the fight, flight, freeze, or fawn, we might just freeze and be stuck in a situation, don't speak up, makes us more depressed and anxious. But sometimes we're like, forget it, I, I'm getting some strength over here. I'm getting out of this terrible job. I'm changing this workplace. I'm changing this family. That sort of disgruntled feeling, um, in certain ways, it's liberating. Just get, getting out of a situation. You don't necessarily have to try to fix it. People don't want you to help them fix it. I guarantee you, people have felt this way. And what Yiftach teaches us in a very behavioral, organizational level, in a very human way, we are allowed to feel bothered and disgruntled. And we can do something about it. Get our own space, have our own business, our own independent contracting. Go to a different business, different workplace. Fight out of it. You do not have to stay in a situation where you're ridiculed. I think I spend more time in therapy helping people to speak up than helping non-empathetic people to be less cruel. That, that, I mean, that's the nature of the beast. We, people are depressed and anxious because they stuff the feelings. They don't change their situation. However, in their defense, you know, I can't just tell someone, go speak up to someone in your life. We spend a lot of time building up self-esteem and self-confidence so they can have those conversations, so they can speak, so they can handle the blowback. And what Yiftach wants you to know, Jephthah is telling us, is that Yiftach, it means to open up. It also means to develop, like a development of houses. You know, you can take the chip on your shoulder and use it as motivation, regardless of if you have self-esteem or not, regardless of you feel you can shout from the mountaintops or tell people off at work, you know. Um, this the impetus, get that snowball rolling. And, I, and so much of the work I do in therapy is not just coping skills in medicine, it's you're allowed to switch jobs, you're allowed to change your relationships, you don't have to eat bologna. That, it's, a, it's like a healthy anger, it really is. It's uh, the emotional side of, let's say, step number five of deep, elaborate, empathetic caring the emotional side is just the care. Even animals have care. We have higher level human care. You know, creativity. The human higher level creativity is creating advanced things. We all we can all do that. The lower level is play, playing, getting that right brain s stimulated, imitating other things and people. When it comes to the seventh step of kingship, the base feeling is rage. Okay, so rage can lead to us losing our minds and our behavior. But I really believe there's a certain type of, I'll, I'll just say healthy anger. There's a certain type of feeling disgruntled. Well, you're not going to take it anymore. And that that spoke to me as well. This Ephraim wanting to speak up, this, this Jephthah feeling disgruntled. We can use that in a way that will not make us angry abusers. It will not make us destroy society. It will make us driven. We should be driven Putting these two ideas together, we should be driven to find the right place with the right people and the right voice. We should be in the right situation with the right voice. And that is beautiful and deep. Really meditate on that. Oh, so beautiful. This, this section touched my heart. At the same time, in Book of Judges terms, in Israelite terms, the nation was not unified. And there remains a certain tension. This tension between Yiftach and being driven and Ephraim and feeling significant is extremely important. And we personally should always feel driven, chip on our shoulder. A participation trophy can make someone feel included. But if someone loses and they feel bad, you say to them, I'm confident that you can push, keep pushing through and win. And many people, such as Michael Jordan, were cut from the team. And they use that to fuel them to be stronger one day. This, this is a set of lessons for our emotional life and also for our leaders. We cannot have leaders that are insecure or too dictatory and aggressive. We must demand it through voting, through proper votes, uh, through interviews, through protesting. Many, many people are out there pulling away states, school association boards away because they're called domestic terrorists and they're called aggressive people in these school boards and counties they 
are controlling the communication of the narrative, but they're supposed to work for the population. They're supposed to work for us. So we need to make sure that the leaders work for us and that they're humble and have a healthy fear of us and God in terms of doing the right thing. Uh, Jephthah judged for six years, not a complete cycle. He was an incomplete leader himself, but we still appreciate him and his message and respect him. He's buried in the cities of Gilead. This is sad, but he did get his punishment because his daughter, if she was an offering, she would be cut up and put on the altar. She wasn't. If someone brings an offering to the temple, the offering is cut up and put on the altar. So he actually died through his different limbs uh, atrophying and dying, and they buried his limbs in different cities. That was his atonement for his hubris and his ignorance. As we come here to these three lesser discussed judges, it is important to review the seven steps of leadership, which are the seven archetypes, which are the seven methodologies for living, the seven forms of biological command systems, etc., and how it relates to four other ideas that are more abstract that are the building blocks of these ideas. Essentially, the reason is that the book until here, uh, until we reached Samson, is really one big section that discusses using all of these 11, basically 11 ideas, seven behavioral earthly ideas and four abstract mental methodologies. 11 ideas in exhaustion so that the Jewish people understand that they can't use worldly behaviors of any kind without the spiritual battle being won and without proper Jewish political leadership. So essentially we need to exhaustively go through all of these. I shall go through the seven, the upper four, and show how the last three I'm not going to say minor judges. They're all, they're all wonderful, powerful people. They're just not discussed as much. They don't have these exciting stories. But these three lesser known, lesser written about judges are relevant to that. So the seven steps are number one, non-judgmental behavior and being inclusive, going after sustenance, the positive being non-judgmental, being positive, sustenance, things should exist. Number two, guarding, protecting boundaries. On that Maslow's hierarchy, the safety. Three, symbolism and metaphor. The universe in a grain of sand, the snow globe representing a whole city or country. Metaphor illusion. Number four, information, education knowledge number five that entities can exist you know out outside as unique special entities seeing some specialness in someone emotional empathy versus non-judgmental is just general support humanistic support this is emotional empathy emotions feelings specialness uniqueness six the connective faculty, five is helping, six is connective, that is uh, uniting parts together, whether it's parts of a person within the psycho-emotional life, or it is uh, human beings in a group, society, countries in the world, connective. So we have what I call s sustaining, guarding, creative or symbolistic symbolism, educational or investigative, helping and connective, and these relate very closely to Holland, who was a vocational psychologist, his, uh, his um, types. But I'm adding on to it as my innovation here, as my thesis. And seven is uh, monarchical behavior, being commanding, being kingly. Okay, those are the seven steps. We reach that with uh, King Saul and fully, really, with David in the proper sense. There are four ideas that are underlying building blocks behind these. Give them sort of their flavor and their, their strengths and weaknesses. One of them is what we call wisdom. Chachma, wisdom. This relates to the auditory faculty of a person. 
And the downside of wisdom is that I have I want honor. I'm so great, I want honor versus the more I am nothing, the more I can listen to others. Auditory faculty that gives birth to the guarding, which is all about those details, keeping details separate or together, mastering details, getting the facts straight. Whereas similarly but differently, that investigative faculty number four has to do with analytic information, a little bit more intuition, getting the information right, correct. That is this faculty, the underlying building block behind that. God willing, I will present more about this later because there are more levels to it. Okay. Then we have the ability to connect outside of oneself. This is the visual faculty. When someone is in Judaism is bar or bat mitzvah, girls are 12, boys are 13. Uh, they don't get married anymore, but they really understand how to connect. It's called das. It's not just knowledge. They understand how to connect with those beyond them. It's that visual capacity. There's me and there's you. The downside is kina. The downside is jealousy because I am looking at you to compare. This gives birth to uh, symbolism and art, even auditory art, actually, because it has to do with imagination, the visual faculty of abstract imagination, the right brain stimulation. And also the connective faculty. You have to connect the dots all together. You have to see, look at them and see them and figure out the pathway to connect. The next is um, physical knowledge, which is either comparing items that are physical items or the kinesthetic uh, physical faculty. The faculty for this is the kinesthetic wisdom, the gut sense, the um, uh, muscle memory learning. That's, that's the first one. The, the positive, the sustaining, is to make sure that physical items are sustained and compared and given their own right to exist. And then you have the step number five, which is that emotional helping relates to the physical empathy, physical kinesthetic feeling. So here, with these last three leaders, um, you have someone named Elon, Avdon, and... and Ivzan, Ivzan, however you pronounce it in your edition. So in these three people, you really, I see, I already see these four ideas. If you include the idea of uh, the crown of kingship, Kesser, the crown of kingship, which is all the parts are not just together through connection, but tight in the kingdom. All the different components, as I described with Jephthah, Yiftach, every component has to be part of the, the kingdom, in the domain. This relates to, I would call it an ego filter. You know, the king's own mental filter and self is the decision-making for the whole country, really. Unlike these democratic votes or representative republics. The downside is, Gaiva is arrogance. It is only I that exists. But whereas the healthy King David says, no, no, no. There, we, we will have strong beliefs to be victorious. However, we know that God must bless us. It's a personal will with humility, which parallels in a secular sense Jim Collins' research into good to great, great by choice, how companies are great, this level five CEO leadership. The best ones are the ones that are humble enough to listen and not demean people, not to be too controlling, but to be personally driven and have high accountability. So within these three lesser discussed judges, I see these four qualities, but for sure if you include Jephthah, Yiftah, you will have all these other four ideas. Okay? So already Jephthah has the kingship. Everything has to fit into his kingdom. He uses that to uh, dispel, conquer the enemies, but it ends up being that it leads to his downfall with the arrogance. He doesn't go to Phineas. Phineas, me boy. He doesn't go to Phineas, and he um, very strongly believes all components have to be part of the crown, part of the kingdom, and he ends up killing people instead of giving them a religious awakening. He says, you are busted. Um, okay, so already we have three judges here that bring unique achievements in a certain region. So, Ivzan. He is identified as the same. He's Boaz, Boaz from the Book of Ruth. So we know already that usually 
when the tradition says that one person is really another, it means they have the same personality, the same methodology. So Boaz was a huge is Boaz is a huge leader in the Book of Ruth, a scholar, head of a Jewish Beit Din, the Jewish courts, and he lived in Ibsan, as well as Boaz lived in Bethlehem, the lower Bethlehem near uh, the re- in in the region of Judah. So we have someone who is harnessing the that auditory, the analytic wisdom through humility, not having honor, and he's teaching the people within the tribe of Judah, you will have kings come from you, you're a very strong nation, you're first in the war, but you need to have humility. And humility will remedy two problems here, the desire for honor, therefore someone will go after wisdom, and the, the desire for arrogance. The king will not say it is I, it is really God, but my personal will. So there you go. Ibzan or Ibzan comes to remedy that as a wonderful judge. Next is someone named Elon in the tribe of Zebulun. Um, and I see here he's connecting two steps three and six. That visual um, sense of ima- using the faculty of imagination for prayer. It's a much longer story, but basically part of prayer is uh, not a not necessarily creative faculty, but it has to do with imagination and flourishing. It says with the tabernacle that traveled in the desert, the boards were cut from trees, acacia wood. They're atze shitim omdin the shitim wood. They're standing, and they expound here. They're even standing today. So his name is alone. Alone is a type of tree. So already step number six, green, flourishing, that sort of thing. But step number three also, if you take step one, kindness, step two, judgment, put it together, you have a compassion that transcends understanding. That is the prayer and the house of love and prayer, so to speak, has wood and trees to get rid of the thoughts of Gaia and this idolatrous goddess and practices to focus on pointing the flourishing and growth up to heaven or to the altar that we pray to God. So the the third, the faculty number three, as a media statement, we kind of said in, in the Deborah section, instead of like slandering with your words and presenting media, we are praising God, portraying him as the one. And Zebulun is up there north, economically prosperous. Side by side with the evil Sidonites, the Sidonim. They both have these uh, you know, maritime ships and trade and flourishing. So he's using his you know, physical prowess of business uh, to connect people and money, to bring people together, to, to sell. And, and that will be elevated as a holy activity to flourish and to use the visual and imaginative and business interactive faculty for a holy purpose. Thank you. Elon. Avdon. So Avdon will help to uh, fix the capacity of step number one and step number five, which have the um, physical, the kinesthetic prowess. Um, so he's an Ephraim. Okay, so Ephraim, again, powerful, powerful attributes that come from Joseph and Joshua, but they can be used for physical pleasure. Joseph was tempted by the wife of Potiphar. However, Avdon, this person's name is servant. Okay, Avdon ben Hillel. He is coming and he is using his abilities for servitude and prayer. Even living in a place called Pirason, which means payback. After all these years of the brothers um, selling Joseph, almost killing him, him forgiving them because it was part of a big picture, the visual large picture, as I say in chapter 6 of my book, highly recommend the seven ways for this interaction between Joseph and his brothers. But he says, don't worry about it. I don't take it personally. It was part of a big picture. I, I let it go. 
So Pirasson, this is a certain payback that the brothers say. It's kind of opposite of what you expect. The brothers say, well, you know what? We still want to make sure you fix that part of you that is, you know, you have a deep intuition in human psychology. You could use that for deep physical pleasure and using people, manipulating people or womanizing. So he doesn't. He's teaching the people in Ephraim to use the body, the physical intuition and prowess for good, to be a servant of prayer. Avdon ben Hillel, servant of prayer. And this harnesses step one because step one is really extremely physical, kinesthetic idea and empathy and emotions are very physical. Buried, he's buried, Avdon is buried near the Amalek mountain. Here we go again, Amalek, constantly near Joseph. Joseph's open-minded, but he keeps it kosher as he's being taught by Deborah and Avdon and everyone. And the Amalekites need to be told, get out of here. This is not your mountain. You are so open-minded, your brain falls out. You are so anti-religious culture, you destroy religion. Whereas Joseph doesn't like religious culture, but he wants us to remember the main thing is the law, culture, and social pressure should not supersede. Focus on the law, where it often does. That's a good point from them. So we end off really sort of the first third of this book with going through the gamut of a human abilities and endeavor. And we understand that it cannot be done alone without full spiritual revival and a come-to-God moment. The next section will be Samson, which has major implications, and then at the end are two stories, one about individual family that impacts the tribal families, and one about tribal civil war, that really round out the three major sections of the book. I look forward to keeping piecing together my thoughts. I have notes, but I go over them again to really crystallize important messages, and I appreciate you being here on this journey. Please send me ideas. Please let me know what you uh, want to add on to this or question or disagree. This is going gradually an open forum. I hope you enjoyed the Downstream from Religion podcast. Feel free to email me with comments or questions to rabbi at rabbibailey.com or rabbibailey at gmail.com, B-A-I-L-E-Y. Please subscribe, share the podcast, and write a review. Many blessings.